Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Soon, for the first time in our history, a Native woman's signature will be on our nation's currency. That was Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen speaking in September at the swearing-in of Chief of the Mohican Tribe Lynn Malerba as U.S. Treasurer. Chief Malerba is the first Native American to serve in this role. Today where we live, Madam Treasurer Malerba joins us to describe her new position and goals, including how to improve federal communication and resources for local tribes. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. With us on Zoom now is U.S. Treasurer and Chief of the Mohegan Tribe, Lynn Malerba. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you, Lucy. I'm so happy to be back on your show. It's always a pleasure. And congratulations to you. Uh, this must be a momentous time in your long career when you think about uh, where you have gone and how you've represented uh, the Mohegan tribe. I think the news broke in June of the appointments by President Biden, the swearing in in September. How does it feel? I, you know, I am so honored to be part of this administration and to serve as the United States Treasurer, particularly because it is the first Indigenous person to ever serve in this role. Uh, so I, I really think, you know, my appointment is a promise kept, you know, by the Biden-Harris administration. You know, they you know, committed to having our Native voices heard at the highest levels of government. And I think that my appointment is proof of that. I mentioned, and our listeners know, uh, you are a lifetime chief of the Mohegan tribe, and I understand you come from a long line of chiefs. Uh, You also made history when you became a chief uh, in modern times, the first, uh, I believe, woman uh, chief of the Mohegan tribe. And so, again, can you talk about uh, this this moment for you? And, you know, when you think about uh, the the family uh, that you come from and what this means to the Mohegan people? Well, obviously, you know that my great grandfather was chief during his time and my mom served on tribal council for a long time. And I'm inspired by all the very strong female leaders that we've had in our tribe throughout time. Um, I wish my mom was here to see this moment because she would be so proud. But I know that being in this role is really serving not only all of Indian country, but all of our native nations, all of our native citizens, but also all of the communities throughout the United States, because part of the role of treasurer is community engagement. And so I hope that I will make a difference for all of the people throughout this United States. Mm -hmm. So let's talk more about these new roles. Again, U.S. Treasurer, but you're also overseer of a new Office of Tribal and Native Affairs at the Treasury Department. So can you tell our listeners more? Yes, well, as you know, I was on the Treasury Tribal Advisory Committee um, for a long time. And one of the things that we've been advocating for in each agency and department throughout the federal government is to have an Office of Tribal Affairs and Native Affairs for the sole purpose of 
helping each agency understand not only what their trust and treaty obligations are for tribes, but also to ensure that policy serves our Native nations. And so I'm proud to um, stand up this office. We do have tribal people working in the Office of Recovery Programs right now. Um, and they have uh, really done a wonderful job helping you know, get all of the treasury funds out to Native nations, and, but to do so in a way that is uh, respectful of tribal sovereignty. And the way they've done that is through consultation to really talk with tribes about how best these programs can be designed to serve them, and also to understand what some of the challenges and barriers might be to deployment of these funds. And when you talk about challenges and barriers, uh, what do you mean? Well, you know, for instance, the tribes in Alaska don't always have good internet access. So if we're asking them to apply online or we're asking them to submit reports online, that may not work for them. And so we need to understand what some of those challenges may be and develop alternative pathways to make sure that they're successful also. Mm. Uh, in a profile of the Associated Press, uh, they describe this latter role again, uh, overseer of the new Office of Tribal and Native Affairs at the Treasury Department as also thinking about new ways to help tribes develop their economies. Uh, so uh, tell me more from that um, perspective. Sure. Well, as you know, and I think we've chatted before, tribes do not tax their citizens. So the way that they provide services for their citizens is through economic development on their reservations. We need to make sure that as we think about economic development on reservations, that we're thinking about what some of the nuances might be and also what some of the um, considerations might be for wherever tribes are located throughout the United States. And as you think about it, tribes are so very unique, um, even though, you know, we have some very shared characteristics. You could think about the New England tribes as being Algonquin. You could think about the Great Plains tribes as being, you know, similarly situated. Um, we all have unique ways that we want to serve our people. Um, and I think that that's what's most important. Some tribes will always receive their healthcare services, for instance, through Indian Health Services, other tribes will say, no, we want to be self-governing, which means Indian Health Services will, will uh, provide the funding that they normally would have spent for that tribe to the tribe. And then the tribe will uphold that trust and treaty obligation and design the programs in a way that is culturally sensitive for their people. Again, you're hearing U.S. Treasurer and Chief of the Mohegan Tribe, Lynn Malerba, here where we live as we talk about her new roles within the federal government. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, you've held uh, many different roles, been part of many different boards uh, related uh, to tribal nations for some time. Uh, and the day reported that you were also on the board of the United South and Eastern Tribes, which I believe is a nonprofit intertribal group, where uh, you, quote, long lobbied for better communication between the nonprofit, intertribal group, and the federal government. So can you talk about how that will be part of your mission as U.S. Treasurer as well? I was very fortunate to be on the board of United South and Eastern Tribes. They're a 5013C and a 501C4 organization, and it is comprised of 33 tribes that range from Maine down to Florida, over to Texas. Um, and so it's a very diverse group of tribes. Again, you know, when you think about the Northeast and the Southeast and, and say the tribes that are situated along the Gulf Coast, 
uh, very different histories. And um, some of those tribes have um, are the remnants of tribes that had to move um, to Oklahoma and who were displaced during the Trail of Tears. But there are some tribes that still remain in those southeastern states. Um, so as a, a board member, one of the things that we would do would be to talk about good federal policy and to advocate for good federal policy and to weigh in on legislative efforts um, at, for all of the agencies throughout the federal government. Um, and so as a member of USEP, um, I was uh, fortunate to be appointed to several advisory committees at the federal level, one being Treasury, uh, but the other being National Institute of Health, um, the um, Indian Health Services, Tribal Self-Governance Advisory Committee, the Department of Justice, uh, Tribal Nations uh, Conference. So I was able to kind of look across uh, multiple agencies to see how things work um, and also to advocate for good federal policy on behalf of all the nations uh, throughout this United States, just not just the 33 tribes. Um, now that I'm here in this role, there's a bright line between my former board uh, representation and what I'm doing here at Treasury. Um, and so I'm no longer on the board and no longer um, are, am able to speak on their behalf, but surely um, we have very talented people on that board who have you know, worked with that board for a long time. And Sarah Harris, who is our vice chairwoman, is now taking my place on that board. And I think that that's wonderful. She's a very strong uh, tribal leader. Um, she also has historic uh, relations with the tribe. Her dad was the chairman when we received federal re-recognition and built Mohegan Sun. And, um, and she's a younger voice, so I think that's good. It's time for these younger folks to step up. So getting back to your role within the Treasury Department, uh, thinking about how to get Treasury funds to the tribal nations, we talked about some of the challenges. Uh, but when we think about the pandemic and the pandemic relief funds, uh, I understand the largest single infusion of federal funding to Indi Indian country to date uh, that was reported in the day. And so thinking about all those different agencies, Madam Treasurer Malerba, again, you know how you're going to work uh, to better collaborate within these agencies to make sure uh, that these funds and are being used and getting to these uh, nations appropriately? Well, we're very fortunate because there is the White House Council on Native American Affairs, uh, fondly known as WICNA. And Secretary Yellen does, uh, as a principal for this um, department, does sit on um, that committee and we staff her. Um, and so we're able to see how different initiatives may actually be um, owned in part by various agencies. And so we're looking at ways to reduce uh, some of the siloed impact of that and really think about how we can work across agencies to better serve Indian country. I also think that that's a way to think about how we serve all of our citizens of the United States because we're so engaged in our own mission. I think sometimes we need to look beyond our and think about, you know, how do we engage with those other agencies? So in this role, of course, I'm looking at the Department of Interior, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, Indian Health Services, and those and Health and Human Services, I think, primarily to see how we can um, it, at least, you know, combine our efforts to make sure that as we think about how we are dealing with this post-pandemic world, that we're helping to rebuild um, those tribal nations uh, from those very serious impacts um, that we experienced. I don't know if you read the recent New York Times, 
but it talked about the fact that life expectancy for tribal people decreased by seven years. I mean, we think it's a big deal if life expectancy decreases by a few months, but seven years, that was the impact of the pandemic. We were hit very hard with this. Well, when we think about uh, your work again uh, with this office, uh, I believe uh, that the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation also announced in October the appointment of a tribal member, Jean Swift, to the U.S. Department of the Treasury Tribal Advisory Committee. Can you tell us more? I think you touched on this committee before, but you know the, the announcement that, uh, that Jean Swift will also be joining this and the work that will continue. Oh, sure. And I'd love to take credit for appointing Jean, but I can't take any credit for that. I have much respect for her and consider her a friend. Uh, But Chairman Neal from the Ways and Means Committee uh, selected her because Treasury gets to appoint three people and then Congress and the Senate get to appoint a a combined total of four people. She was appointed in recognition of her very good work um, as the CFO at Mashantucket, but also she is known to Treasury and IRS because she served on the IRS Advisory Committee, not as an Indigenous woman necessarily. Um, Of course, she, she always brings that lens with her, but due to her talent and her financial background. So I'm thrilled to have her on the committee. I think she'll be a very strong voice. We've worked on various initiatives together, and I know how thoughtful she is as she provides comments and feedback in terms of policy and also how we might look at issues in a, in, in a very in-depth manner. You're hearing U.S. Treasurer and Chief of the Mohegan Tribe, Lynn Malerba, here where we live. She was sworn into her new role as U.S. Treasurer back in September. Again, you can join us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, earlier you talked about uh, the economic development uh, within uh, tribal nations, uh, mentioning that tribes cannot offer tax incentives on their reservations. And so thinking about other ways to spur economic development, can you tell us more? Oh, sure. And and what I said was that tribes do not tax their citizens, which is how most municipalities and states provide uh, services to their citizens. So we don't tax our citizens. We would like to be able to offer tax incentives. And in some locations, tribes are able to do that. And I think that that will be something that we're working on um, here at Treasury to look at, are there ways to provide tax credits? But that is not a fully formed thought yet. Um, I've been in the position for about two months or three months now. And so I'm just starting to get my feet on the ground. But surely we're going to look at ways that uh, we can uh, provide access to capital for tribes and, and how we can help tribes develop the infrastructure that perhaps would allow them to be more successful with economic development. As I mentioned, um, broadband um, capability is spotty on some reservations, and surely you need to have good infrastructure in terms of broadband. You need to make sure that you have um, good Um, you know, just infrastructure in general, you know, running water. Some tribes have difficulty with running water. Some tribes have difficulty providing electricity um, if they're in very remote locations. And so it really will be more of a whole of government, I think, um, process and initiative to look at how we can um, look at all of the tribes throughout the United States and then tailor our approaches to those tribes based on what we hear from them. Mm. 
You must be getting lots of questions uh, from people, uh, not only within uh, the people you encounter in Connecticut, but with all the work that you've done about this new role, as you've mentioned, that you've been in for two months as U.S. Treasurer. What are some of the questions you're hearing and, you know, the understanding of how the department can help uh, Americans? Well, I've been very fortunate here in the department. We have um, multiple uh, departments within Treasury, and I'm just starting to get to know them. Um, But we do have uh, a counselor for uh, climate change. And so I think as we think about uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, I'm sure that there will be a lot of engagement with that department. Um, And we are going to be holding a tribal consultation about the Inflation Reduction Act. So we are really going to be gathering good information from tribes to see how we might best um, serve them and to think about what policies we may need to think about and and how tribes can weigh in on regulations. There's a very formal process that happens uh, when any department issues uh, a notice of uh, regulations. And so tribes will have an opportunity to weigh in on that. We will be reviewing their feedback and input and hopefully be able to incorporate some of that into the final rulemaking process. Mm -hmm. And as treasurer, you also oversee U.S. Mint and the Treasurer's Office of Consumer Policy, as well as working with the Federal Reserve. So can you talk about uh, those uh, perspectives? Well, I have to say I've learned so much about the Mint as well as the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. They are fascinating operations and it's amazing, you know, the volume of output that each of those different departments uh, provide. Um, So it's been a lot of fun looking at that and understanding a little bit about their process. It's um, their manufacturing uh, processes as well as, you know, uh, policy, you know, making the departments, because when you think about our currency, people need to have faith in our currency. And so I've been very fortunate to understand a little bit about that process and and how there is a lot of safety built into our currency um, and the process that happens and also how, you know, the money gets made. That's been terrific. And I have to say, I'm super proud of the fact that this will be the first time that two women are on uh, our currency because Secretary Yellen is the first female um, Secretary of Treasury. And and again, I'm the first indigenous person to be the United States Treasurer, but not the first woman. So this is going to be historic. Mm. Yeah, we heard uh, that clip from Treasury Secretary Yellen at the top of the show about your name soon to be seen on U.S. currency. The day reported likely by the end of the year, and uh, there was a discussion about how your name would appear, either Chief Lynn Malerba or Chief Many Hearts, Mutawi Mutahash Lynn Malerba. Can you tell us about uh, the meaning of your Mohegan name? Well, I can't scoop PR on when the money is going to come off the presses, Uh, but I will tell you that I assigned my name Lynn Roberge Malerba, and there's a very sentimental reason why I did that. Um, There are no rules. I mean, there are are prohibitions uh, for signing any moniker, so whether it's Mr., Mrs., Doctor, or anything. So I thought, okay, that's fair. I guess I can't sign Chief. Uh, But For those of you who know me, you know, I grew up in a family of seven children with uh, my parents, you know, just just the most loving, wonderful parents on the planet. Uh, However, they struggled financially because they had seven children. And so they they always had a little bit of difficulty making sure they had enough uh, funds available to provide for us. We always, you know, always had what we needed, but surely they were not wealthy people. And so my middle name is my parents, um, my parents' last name, Roberge. And so it was a very emotional moment for me to sign 
their name on the currency, knowing how they struggled to raise us, knowing how what loving parents they were. So despite the fact that they had difficulties financially sometimes, um, now their name will be on the currency. And I think that that's a wonderful legacy to them. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you for sharing that with us. When we look at uh, the swearing-in ceremony that happened in September, you were there with your family. And I wonder if you can talk about that moment with us. Well, it was very difficult to not be emotional at that moment. And it was very special to me that my family was able to witness such a wonderful moment. Um, I had two of my sisters there, as well as my daughters, sons-in-law, grandchildren, and numerous members of our Council of Elders and Tribal Council there and other tribal people here located in, um, in D.C. So it was really very special to be in German. Um, Butler uh, attended as well. You know, we needed all of our Connecticut Indians in the house. Uh, but it was really a, a wonderful moment. And again, I wish my parents were there to see it. Um, I know that um, part of part of any joy in my life is making my family proud, whether it's my immediate family or my tribal family, and in this case, all of Indian country proud and Connecticut. Um, so it was really a special moment. And, and Secretary Yellen was just so gracious in her remarks. Mm. There's a picture of, of your family uh, at, during that ceremony at ctpublic.org slash where we live. Can you tell us about uh, the ceremonial, um, the dress that you have on and what that means uh, for you and your family? It was very important to me that we swore in an Indigenous woman because that is my role and it is something that has never been done before. And um, so while I couldn't sign chief to the money, which was fine, um, I really did want people to recognize me as an indigenous woman and an indigenous leader. Um, and I was thrilled that my daughters wore their regalia and my grandchildren wore their regalia, except for my grandson, because I didn't have time to make him a new ribbon shirt. Um, but one of my granddaughters wore her mother's regalia, and that was very touching to me. And our Council of Elders also were dressed in their regalia. So it was really a celebration for all of us. Mm -hmm. We're speaking to you, and it happens to be National Native American Heritage Month. Uh, for listeners, what do you want them to reflect on this November? What I'd like people to remember is it's not just about our history. It's about the fact that we are very resilient people, and we're still here. And we're still contributing to the overall good of the United States with our culture, with our history, with you know the, the art that we make, with our indigenous foods. Um, so the lands that we all love, we all share together. And it's important that people remember that we may be the first people here and we were the stewards of this land, but now I want everybody to remember that they need to be good stewards of our homelands as well. Again, you've been hearing U.S. Treasurer and Chief of the Mohegan Tribe, Lynn Malerba. Madam Treasurer Malerba, I want to thank you for the many times you've come on our show to talk about issues that matter to Native American tribes, including the Mohegans. Uh, the one that really stands out to me is when uh, you came on to talk about Flying Bird Fidelia Fielding, the last fluent speaker of the Mohegan language. Her diaries and papers returned to the Connecticut tribe from Cornell University. I remember that being a powerful hour. Thank you so much for the time that you've taken to educate our listeners. Oh, Lucy, it is always my pleasure. So I would say, we kotamui. I'm learning the language. I'm not quite there yet. Um, but we kotamui means it is my pleasure. And so I wish you all the best. And thank you for having me on your show today.
Thank you. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Coming up after the break, we're going to hear from CT Humanities Executive Director Jason Mancini. He's examined census records that reveal the historical erasure of New England's vibrant Native American population. We're going to learn more after the break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As I mentioned, November is National Native American Heritage Month, and my next guest has done extensive research on the region's tribes. Dr. Jason Mancini is executive director of CT Humanities. He's the former leader of the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center. He's also an anthropologist who has examined census records records that reveal the historical erasure of New England's vibrant Native American population. He joins us now on Zoom. Jason, welcome back to the show. Lucy, good morning. It's uh, delightful to be here. This note, CT Humanities is an underwriter of Connecticut Public. Our listeners can join our conversation at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Before we hear more about your research, Jason, I'm wondering if you can uh, comment on what uh, Madam Treasurer, uh, again, she, what Lynn Malerba, who's the longtime Mohegan chief, shared with us about transparency, communication, even more resources uh, between between the federal government and local tribes. Well, it's it's just incredibly exciting to have somebody of her her knowledge and experience in this role, uh, especially having sort of seen the history of the tribes and their um, dispossession and historical erasure from uh, the region's landscape, um, where you know they were the stewards, as she pointed out, of this land. Um, these were their resources. Um, and it fell out of their possession very rapidly. So to be able to see tribes empowered uh, in this way is, is such a, uh, a sea change um, and to see the opportunity that, that tribes now have at their hands um, is just very exciting. We should mention, uh, again, history also being made when we think about Secretary Holland uh, leading the Interior uh, Department. <coughs> Jason, your thoughts uh, on that? 
Um, I, I think this is all wonderful news for Indian country. Um, uh, to have to have these perspectives, to have this um, uh, uh, women sort of connecting indigenous communities to um, to these homelands um, and, and steward them in the ways that um, really haven't had this this um, uh, this connection in so long from from anybody in the past. I know that you're a lifelong Connecticut resident. And so tell me how you got interested in the history of tribes in this region. Well, a long time ago, my uncle uh, got me interested. He was uh, uh, he is an archaeologist and anthropologist, uh, and he was working with the Mashantucket Pequot tribe. We, we both happened to live in Ledger at the time. And he uh, he was doing archaeological research on his doctoral dissertation. And uh, I was just very interested um, and, and always wanted to be outside and exploring and learning. Um, and so I used to beg my parents to let me go with him in the field. And uh, he usually took me and occasionally dumped me off in Yukon's archaeology lab to scrub artifacts. And I just couldn't get enough of it. So uh, I continued to do it. And as I got older, um, I, I went to school with Pequots um, and started working on the reservation doing archaeological work as a teenager and just continued to do it. Um, I, I studied it in, uh, in college and uh, in, in more specifically history. Um, and then the, the Pequot Museum project began in the early 90s. Um, and I got, uh, I got drawn into that and uh, continued, continued to do all of this work collaboratively with tribal communities in the region. And I, as I mentioned, you're the former leader of the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center, a wonderful, wonderful resource uh, for our state and, and for those who are coming into our state. So let's talk more about uh, your research, uh, Jason, uh, when uh, we think about um, the historical record and erasing uh, Native people uh, who lived here. You know, how did you um, start to do that research and what did you find? Yeah, so about uh, 20 years ago or so, I started doing my work um, in the in the tribes research department, and and I, I moved away from archaeology and started looking at uh, the tribal communities and begin to understand why why are these persisting narratives of Indian disappearance? Um, um, they've been going on for centuries. How do we begin to explain that? Um, and I wasn't comfortable with the scholarly explanations of, of what this looked like, um, whether it was just working on farms or um, in the military um, or, or religious migrations and things like that. Um, so I started looking at historical documents um, around the presence and absence of Native people on reservations. And, and there seemed to be a lot of gaps. But this disappearance narrative really was puzzling for a while. So I started looking at how, in fact, Indians were being counted. And I'm using the term Indian very deliberately because it is an important legal and political term um, and embedded in the Constitution uh, and so on. So um, I, I, I really started looking at who, who is counting, why are they counting, and um, how thorough are these enumerations? So looking at the earliest counts in the, in the uh, early 1700s, it was often tied to tribes' uh, size and power, often tied to the number of fighting men, as they were called, 
and then their populations were extrapolated by a factor of uh, a multiplier of four or five uh, that would include women and children. And that's how uh, European colonists could understand uh, how powerful tribes were and what they might be up against, having just um, been through King Philip's War uh, in the 1670s and, and earlier than that, the Pequot War. Um, as we move into the mid-18th century, the 1740s and 50s, the New England town begins to settle and develop around um, these parishes and road systems start to develop and clerks are beginning to count uh, people a little bit differently. But there are, there are um, requirements by the English crown uh, to, to enumerate all white people, English people, I'm sorry, white people, Indian people, and black people. Um, and so they start these systematic counts uh, town by town, and you can start to see um, these, these enumerations evolve. Um, and and just, just for a little bit of perspective, um, the, the, the landscape, I, I want to step back from the enumerations for a second. The landscape in southern New England is such that there are about 9 million acres of land. And by, um, by the American Revolution, uh, the, all of that land, which was Indian country, evaporated out of Indian possession. And uh, the tribes were left collectively with about 30,000 acres of land. So my goal was to sort of understand how are Indians being counted? And there, there are particular tribes um, in Connecticut, in Massachusetts, and Rhode Island um, and they're being documented in other ways, but in the first census of uh, 1756 that does this town-by-town -town census in Connecticut, only three tribes are counted, the two Pequot tribes and, and um, Mohegan, or I'm sorry, Niantic, and we know that there's a Mohegan tribe, we know there's a Wangunk and a Tunxis and a Quinnipiac and a Pagusset and a Scaticoke tribe, but they're not being counted. Um, and then by... Um, uh, 1762, suddenly eight tribes are being enumerated and the population has increased from 617 to 940. Um, and that sort of, that piqued my interest. Um, and, and that documentation around uh, reservations and counting became clear that as the, as the towns are forming, Indians were being counted um, more completely. Um, and then the aftermath, this is, so just for your listeners, this is during and in the immediate aftermath of the French and Indian War. And many of the tribal communities are fighting on behalf of the English and uh, the men are being disproportionately impacted and many of them are never coming home um, by uh, mortality in the encampments or death in, in, in battles. Uh, and so the impact of that is that many uh, women and children are falling on hard times. They, they're having a hard time providing for themselves. They no longer have access to their traditional resources, the land that they used to harvest uh, resources from. Um, and in doing so, many uh, were forced into uh, indentured servitude, um, uh, working on English farms and, and, and in a situation not unlike uh, enslavement. And so by uh, the year or so before, year or two before the American Revolution in the 1774 census, we all of a sudden see a much larger Indian population scattered across 49 Connecticut towns. Um, 
And, and so that 940 becomes nearly 1,400. Um, and this isn't just birth rates. This is, this is better documentation. Um, and this is just for Connecticut. Rhode Island and Massachusetts are experiencing similar um, um, representation and, and uh, uh, much larger numbers. Um, and then something interesting happens. Um, once the American Revolution is concluded, the early republic begins to um, document Indians in a different way, whether they're lumping them in with a broader population of color and just calling everybody black or creating new categories like mulatto um, and splitting out um, Indian people from that category. Uh, and what, what is really um, most um, um, vexing is that by 1790, with the first federal census, there are, there are exactly zero Indians enumerated. So the federal census takes um, um, all the Indian population and, and excludes them completely. And they do that uh, through 1870 um, or through 1860. And in 1870, the first, um, the first federal census to include Indian people um, in places like New London, uh, where there were hundreds of them in the prior years, uh, has has only two Indians being enumerated. Wow. Um, I wanted to remind so, our listeners that they're hearing Jason Mancini, executive director of CT Humanities, as we talk about um, your research revealing the historical erasure of a New England's vibrant Native American population. So you're talking about the different ways uh, that uh, Indians were counted or not counted in the census. You were also drawing on other research, including from Ezra Stiles. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, Ezra Stiles was an interesting character. Um, he was a, a minister and later the president of Yale University or Yale College. Um, and he had an obsessive interest in counting Indians and did so across the region. Um, and one of the, one of the interesting things, uh, and his, his counts were happening um, in the early 1760s. And, and he started... Um, uh, up in, in Mahican homelands in Western Massachusetts, and then started documenting the tribal communities in Connecticut and along coastal uh, Southern New England, including the Narragansett and the Wampanoags um, of, of Eastern Massachusetts. Um, and he, he was very detailed. He provided specific families uh, by name, the number of children, boys and girls, um, whether they lived in a, a, a framed house like a European or in a wigwam or witu, which is in a, a traditional uh, native uh, home, um, and the number of people. Um, and, and he did that at a particular time um, when native communities were losing land um, very rapidly, uh, being dispossessed by neighboring um, white farmers, uh, so there, there was a lot of um, factionalism within tribal communities, and that was being leveraged by um, the, the colonies. And the colonies ended up, and Ezra Stiles uh, was, was a perfect example of this, uh, only enumerating a portion of the tribal communities. So, for example, at Mohegan, um, uh, where Chief Malerba's homelands are, um, there was only one, there were two major Mohegan villages, um, Ben Uncas and John Uncas, his brother, 
Uh, and only one of the communities was being counted by Stiles, um, Benstown. Johnstown was completely eliminated from these enumerations. So it makes it appear that the Native people, there's far less Native people. Um, similarly, among the Narragansett uh, and Niantic of, uh, of uh, Rhode Island, this community was in the midst of uh, a heartbreaking series of land losses when the um, tribal sachem, Tom Ninigret, was selling land, uh, thousands of acres of land, to feed his, um, uh, his expensive and lavish lifestyle at the expense of the tribal community. So um, these, these tribal factions formed around what were called um, a sachem's party and a tribe's party. Um, and only one portion of the Narragansett tribal community was being counted because of this. Um, similarly, at Mashantucket, an entire portion of their reservation was sold out of their possession in 1762. Um, and uh, Stiles only counted uh, roughly half of the tribe, leaving 20, 20 families, at least 20 families, off of his enumeration. So this, this really, in, in some, leaves... Um, the, the public, the, the, the authorities with the understanding that, that there are far fewer Indians than there actually are on the landscape. And this persists over time. Uh, and I think what, what this really does um, broadly is build this sort of narrative um, in this young country um, that Indians are simply not present. Um, you know, and there are other things that begin to complicate that. In the absence of land, Native people are, they are in fact at war, they are on farms, but increasingly many Native people are going to sea um, and they're not being seen there. Um, they're only being documented by customs officials. So when tribal overseers, which are basically white, uh, white caregivers um, and managers of tribal affairs um, in the late 1700s and early 1800s, they're going to the reservations and saying the only people on the reservations are old women, crippled men, and children. All of the able and smart men are gone, or all the smart men are off at sea. Um, so we, we lose this sense of who's here, and this, this accumulates over the course of, this, the, of the 19th century um, so that people like Jan James Fenimore Cooper uh, can write something like The Last of the Mohicans in 1826 that really amplify this myth of disappearance. Yeah, that's all really important context. Thank you for filling that in for us. You're hearing Jason Mancini, Executive Director of CT Humanities. We'll continue talking with him after the break. And if you have questions about his research and the history of tribes in this region, you can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest is Jason Mancini, Executive Director of CT Humanities. He's also co-founder of the Occomout Educational Initiative, which works with educators in K-12 schools, institutions of higher learning, and public history sites to create awareness and inform dialogue about American Indian history, contemporary Native lifeways, and Indigenous futures. Uh, Jason, you're also, I understand, working with the Reimagining New England Histories Fellowship at Brown University. Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice, and as part of your recent appointment as visiting associate professor of slavery and justice. So can you tell us a little bit about this, how the focus is not just on Native American, but also African and African American experiences and voices? Sure. Yeah, this is, it's such an exciting initiative that that draws together uh, contemporary scholarship and communities uh, to focus on really bringing bringing about a, a, a new New England history, um, one that uh, hasn't been heard, uh, partly because many of the stories have been uh, buried in archives, um, or simply uh, we haven't listened to uh, the source uh, people, uh, the communities themselves. And so this is a great opportunity to really uh, bring bring to bear uh, new voices that, that share these stories uh, as broadly as possible. And this is a wonderful uh, Mellon Foundation-funded uh, project uh, in collaboration between Brown University, Williams College, and Mystic Seaport. Um, so my, my involvement in this is really uh, through my intersection um, of, of uh, historical and archival research and, and community-based uh, scholarship. And so I, I think it's a really um, exciting opportunity to look at um, through through um, these intersecting communities historically and the challenges um, uh, of documenting uh, what's happened and transpired uh, since the 18th um, and 19th centuries. We just um, have about uh, four minutes or so, but can you tell us a little bit about how the histories of African Americans are inextricably linked to that of, of Native Americans? Sure. Um, well, in the in the mid 18th century, um, enslaved peoples were bring, being brought to um, New England shores, um, and Native people uh, and and people of African ancestry were in the same spaces, and they interacted socially and sexually, and so their histories became entwined uh, from that point. Um, and and their their children um, of mixed ancestry were being. Uh, counted in different ways. Um, and by European authorities, um, it, it was often reduced to um, um, what, what people might call the one drop rule where any, any uh, black ancestry, the person was um, considered black, but within native communities, and importantly, um, the child follows the mother. Women's, women's role and rights are, are um, foundational to tribal communities here. So um, this mixing um, was was received differently um, uh, within Native citizenship frameworks. I mentioned uh, this initiative where we also spoke to co-founders and Donna Spears and Chris Newell uh, last year about the new Native American studies requirement for Connecticut schools, Jason. Uh, resources are being prepared in time, mm -hmm. I believe, for the 2023 school year. Can you give us any updates on, on the work that you've all been doing? Yeah, we've been working closely with the Connecticut Council for the Social Studies and the Connecticut State Department of Education um, to begin 
uh, building the frameworks and and structuring the curriculum. So we're uh, this this is a great opportunity, um, much much the same as as uh, Chief's work um, at Treasury. We have Native people at the table um, in these in these initiatives, so um, they're 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 driving the process, um, and their stories are being told um, in in the way that they want them told. Um, so our our traditional linear uh, view of history is is being uh, replaced with a sensibility around identity, kinship, community, um, and a sense of place and connection to homeland. Um, and that's the kind of thing that um, we want to see being imbued within our uh, our curricular initiatives in Connecticut, especially when we're considering uh, whose homelands in which we live. Right. And we think about helping educators teach local Native history using those Native source resources that you mentioned, Jason. That's really important. It is, um, you know, not just the tribal educators that are here, but the you know important uh, sites like the Tantaquidgen Museum at Mohegan and the Mashantucket Pequot Museum um, on the Pequot Reservation. Um, these are incredibly valuable resources for people to uh, visit, learn, listen. Um, one of my earliest experiences um, as, as a child was visiting the Tantaquidgen Museum and learning from uh, Chief Harold Tantaquidgen and Gladys Tantaquidgen who are amazing knowledge keepers. Um, and, and you can see the, the impact it has uh, on the contemporary tribal communities and, and how it's impacted Chief herself. Mm. Well, it's been a pleasure to hear from you, Jason Mancini, Executive Director of CT Humanities, about your research. Uh, history has been a long focus on this show, and we thank you for the time you've given us. You're very welcome, Lucy. Thanks for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Special thanks again to our tech director, Kat Pastor. Tomorrow is actually my last day hosting Where We Live. It's been quite a ride over the last seven years. We're going to bring back some voices and talk about some of the shows that were really important to me as host as I take on a new role at Connecticut Public. We hope you join us. 